I loved coaching my kids growing up in uh, rec sports. I think it was my funnest thing about being a dad. I mean, I love the bedtime stories. I love the snuggles, uh, the pillow fights, uh, the basketball in the backyard. But I'm telling you, man, I think the thing I miss most about having my kids all grown up is that I'm not a little league coach. I would volunteer now. I just think it'd be a little bit creepy. They'd say, oh, which one is your kid? I don't have a kid in the program. Why are you coaching? Because I like coaching kids. Right? Like, I don't want to be that guy. But man, I loved coaching. I, I did, man. I coached all three of my kids in every sport that they played. Sometimes I was a lead coach if I thought that I, I could help them. And sometimes I was just an assistant coach because I just wanted to be around them. My favorite year ever coaching was in 2009. And it was Lauren's Peewee Girls basketball team for Stoyak Youth, Youth Basketball. We won the championship that year. I'm proud to say we, we're, we're, we're champs. We're Stoughton Youth Rec champs. That's what we are. I've got a picture of my team real quick I want to show you. That's, that's the team right there, man. Those, that's those kids, champions right there, man. It's phenomenal. I think the reason why I like that year so much is that the older kids get, the more they think they know more than the coaches. And usually that happens to the boys before it happens to the girls. But that year right there, I'd pull those girls together and say, all right, here's what we're going to do. And they're like, listen, leaning in a second. We're going to do really good, right? And they're like, right. I'm like, right? And they're like, right. And I go, right? And then the girls just scream, right? We'd be losing by 10 or 15 points. I'd pull the girls together. Okay, we're going to win, right? And I'm like, they, man, it's the huddle. That's what I loved most about that year. Pulling those girls in and say, okay, so here's what we're going to do. Right, And then getting those girls to like believe we actually are going. Now I only had two girls that could dribble on the whole team. That's true. It's the girl that's holding, that was holding the sign in that photo. Uh, she, 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 was, she was my best player. And my daughter, Lauren, could dribble really well. She just didn't want to shoot because she didn't like the attention. Like Every time she shot, she knew everybody was looking at her. And if it went in, that was great. But if it didn't go in, that was bad. So she didn't like to, she was a good shot. She loved free throws. I don't know why, because she knew that everyone's going to have to look at her anyway. She might as well make it. And she was an awesome free throw shooter. But it was a lot, it was a lot of fun. But it was that, it's the huddles, man. That's what I love most about it. Today, we're looking at a, a story in the Bible where Jesus is about to send his disciples out onto the court to play for the very first time. Everything up to now is Jesus modeling, Jesus follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. And then Jesus healing in chapter, Matthew chapter eight, nine. And, but Jesus do, doing bulk, the bulk of the work. And now he's about to send the guys out together. And he gives them a pregame speech. That is Matthew chapter 10. The whole chapter is Jesus's first pregame speech before he sent his disciples out onto the field to begin this season as players. But it starts the day before when Jesus points something out that he notices about all of the people, all of the human masses around them, and that's where we're going to start also. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to go to Matthew chapter 9, and we're going to start reading in verse 35. After Jesus does these miracles that we talked about last weekend, Jesus traveled through all the towns and villages of that area, teaching in the synagogues and announcing the good news about the kingdom. And he healed every kind of disease and illness. And when he saw the crowds, the multitudes of people, 
He had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. So then he turns to his disciples. Now, this is the day before the pep talk. And he says, fellas, the harvest is great, but the workers are few. I want you to pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest and ask him, the Lord, God, God the Father, our Father who art in heaven, ask him to send more workers into his field. It's a touching verse and that it gives us insight into Jesus' emotional state when he saw broken people. I know my emotional space when I see broken people. Like I see the masses in traffic. Man, this, this, this week, yesterday, I'm sorry, I was on the phone with another friend of mine and uh, while I'm talking, this guy, and I'm going 40, 45 miles an hour, it's, it's, it's one of the side streets, and this dude looks at me, he waits, he's got all this time, but then he waits until I'm right there on his side street before he pulls out and I have to hit the brakes. And then he just waves like this and I wanted to wave with a different number of fingers, but I probably shouldn't have even said that, I'm sorry. I'm just saying, I laid on the horn and my friend on the phone goes, you tell him, Sean. Like when I see the masses, I get frustrated. When I watch people on TV, I'm looking to see whether or not I would vibe with them. And if I don't vibe with them, I don't automatically think bad things about them. Eh, I just don't care for them as much. I know that, doesn't that sound bad? I'm just trying to be transparent with you. But when Jesus saw the masses of humanity, he didn't feel frustration. He didn't feel anger. He didn't feel hopelessness either. What he felt was compassion. That's not my instinct, but it was his. And I wonder, and this isn't even in my notes, I wonder if it's not my instinct because I'm not praying for them like he was praying for them. And maybe that's the whole reason why Jesus told the disciples, fellas, you need to pray that God does something for them is what you need to do. You need to pray for them. Um, because when, the, when it comes to the masses, People's greatest problem is not their wokeness, their politics. It's not their, uh, the legality of their residency or the morality of their choices. Their biggest problem is that they're like sheep without a shepherd, like a compass without a needle. So it's good to recognize the truthfulness of what Jesus said, that people's greatest problem is not that there's too many of them. Because <laughs> there's not. God said to fill the earth with people that would worship him and bring him glory for all of eternity, whose company he could enjoy for all of eternity. That's a good thing. I think God would look at humanity and go, there's not enough, right? But he wants, the Bible says that God's not willing that anybody should perish, but that all people should come to repentance. So it's God's plan that every one of these sheep find their shepherd. So it's good to notice that that's the biggest problem. They need Jesus. Right? Like, that's a good thing. It's a better thing to begin praying that God would send somebody to reach them. Like when I get frustrated in traffic that that guy who pulled out in front of me, I laid on the horn. I'm not saying I shouldn't have laid on the horn. That's nothing sinful necessarily about that. But my first instinct isn't, this is a guy who's distracted because of stuff that's going on. Like, I have no idea. But I, I, that's the thing. I didn't even care what's going on in that guy's life. I only cared about the way his life was affecting mine. So the better thing would be for me to begin praying more compassionately for people around me. But the best thing 
would be to look for ways to participate in those people's rescue. And that's what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 10. Verse 1, Jesus called his 12 disciples together and he gave them authority to cast out evil spirits and to heal every kind of diseases. Then the next three verses are just the names of all the disciples. So we're going to skip to verse, excuse me, to verse 5, where it says, Jesus sent out the 12 apostles with these instructions. Don't go to the Gentiles or the Samaritans, but only to the people of Israel, God's lost sheep. Go and announce to them that the kingdom of heaven is near. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he started picking his 12 disciples, he told them that he was going to teach them to fish for men. It's just that none of them thought that he would give them a fishing pole this soon. I mean, this is Matthew chapter 10. There's 18 more chapters after this. Like Jesus is just now getting started and already he's commissioning these guys who did not make it all the way through rabbi school. They made it through at least second grade, seven and eight-year-olds. We've talked about that before, but they didn't, like, they're rookies, man. And he's already sending them out to tell everybody the simple message that God's kingdom was here. This was their chance to turn from sin and begin following Jesus. That's what he gave them authority to do. And this begins his locker speech. His final thoughts before sending them out onto the court. And there are a ton, like every two or three verses could be its own little mini sermon. And we don't have time for that. So what I did was I picked out, this is the, this is the biggest number I've ever done. I've picked out seven thoughts. And here's, you're not going to remember all seven thoughts. And I know that. And that really is okay. What I'm wanting you to do is listen until you find the thought that you feel in your heart that God's going, this one is for you. And that's the one thought I want you to write down and hang on to. And once you find that thought, you, you have my permission, not that you need it, to check out of the rest of the sermon because I don't want you to lose the thought that God highlighted in your mind that was for you. And the first thought is this, to be a Christian is to be on mission with Jesus. There isn't anyone in the Bible who ever begins following Jesus who doesn't play a role in the mission of Jesus. Every single one of them. Read it from Matthew to the book of Revelation. Everybody who becomes a devoted follower of Jesus takes their first step, which is baptism. You won't find anybody who is a follower of Jesus who doesn't get baptized or who is baptized who didn't already choose to become a devoted follower of Jesus. They mark themselves, they identify as followers of Jesus, and then take some type of next step because they are a follower of Jesus. Often they would go and find a friend and bring them to Jesus, or they would serve a meal, they would begin washing feet, they would serve the poor, they would encourage other followers of Jesus, they would go to somebody's house to pray with them, they would sing and worship with other followers of Jesus in celebration of the sacraments, the Lord's Supper. But you don't see any of them just getting saved, just saying, I want to be a follower of Jesus, dear God, be a part of my life. And then that becomes the end expression of their life as a follower of Jesus. Every single one of them find a way to contribute to the mission without exception. So the idea 
that someone would claim to follow Jesus by simply agreeing with what he said, but not doing what he did is completely foreign to the actual calling of Jesus and the lives of those he actually called. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul says this in verse 12 and 13. He says, Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you, and now that I'm away, it's even more important. Here's his instruction. Work hard as Christians to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you. This is the advantage, because it isn't difficult if, verse 13 is true, that God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases them. If you genuinely are a Christian, if you have accepted that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is the only thing that pays for your sin and reconciles you to God as your creator, if you've called on Jesus to forgive you and save you, then this verse says that God has the evidence that you are God's child, is that God is right now at work in your heart giving you a desire to do the things that please him. So Paul says, find that desire. And then when you find it, work hard on that. Like crush it. There's another verse that Paul says, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord, whether it's serving or preaching or teaching or gifts of administration or gifts of help or encouragement, whatever the the spiritual thing that God gives you in your heart to do, Paul says, crush it in the name of Jesus. So find something to do on the mission of God with this church family, dang it, and crush it. Like, get good at that thing. You've got a part to play. Play it. The second thought is to be on mission is to serve with other believers. Now, there's a parallel passage of scripture to this one, where I've told you before that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are each different narratives of the life of Jesus, and sometimes they sync up. Like last week when we did the story of the guys who were demon-possessed. That's mentioned in three different gospels. Well, this story of Jesus pulling the disciples together and then giving them authority to cast out demons and to preach that the kingdom of heaven is near is also in Mark chapter 6. So I want to read two verses from that description of this same moment. Mark chapter 6, verse 7. And he called his 12 disciples together and he began sending them out two by two. Now, Matthew didn't give us that detail. But Mark tells us that when Jesus commissioned his disciples for the mission and sent them out, none of them did any of the work for the mission in isolation. All of them were sent out two by two, giving them authority to cast out evil spirits. Verse 12 says, So the disciples went, telling everyone they met to repent of their sins and to turn to God. Jesus paired them up. Why? Because of something Solomon said. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, the son of King David, who became the successor king, sits down at the end of his life and he writes a letter to his son so that none of the wisdom that God had given him would be lost. And he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, he says, Two people are better than one, for they can help each other succeed. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But someone who falls alone is in real trouble. Likewise, two people lying close together can keep each other warm, but how can one be warm alone? 
A person standing alone can be attacked and defeated, but two can stand back to back and conquered. Three are even better than two for a triple created uh, triple braided cord. That whenever I put in too many R's, that takes me back to the speech impediment I had when I was a kid. Three are even better for a triple braided cord is not easily uh, broken. It's in it's in teams that God sends sends us out. Because Christianity is not a solo sport, like swimming or golf. It's a team sport. And you actually see this in the rest of the Bible, in the book of Acts, which gives the story of the followers of Jesus on mission after Jesus had left them and ascended into heaven. You get Paul and Barnabas. You never get Paul by himself. You get Paul and Cornelius, or Cornelius sent to get Paul, then Paul and Barnabas. Then you get Barnabas and, and John Mark. You get Paul and Silas. You get Peter and John. Then you get Aquila, Priscilla, and Apollos. Like you don't see any Christians on mission. I can think of one story where Philip was sent to the Ethiopian eunuch by himself, but was not there longer than a day. God sent him and then right afterwards brought him right back. But our ministry is to be done with other people in pairs. I think the biggest danger in a large church like Grace Church is that if you don't get involved in the mission of God with this church family, then you are isolated, even if you're in a crowd. For those who are part of our church services online, that's the biggest danger, is that if you stop coming back to this website, then you could disappear and nobody notice. And Solomon says that that's when you are most in danger spiritually, is when you're unengaged with other followers of Jesus on the mission of God. This could look like different things. It could be you need to be in a life group. Even an online life group is better than no life group at all. You could be on a ministry team. You could be in a growth group. You can go to that'sgrace.org slash groups to find out about all the different groups that we have. Surely one of them will fit your schedule. My life group, we took a break. And then during the break, the guys in our life group started into every other Thursday dinner at a different restaurant or at a different guy's house. And a different guy brings a 10-minute devotional. We actually haven't gotten the life group back together yet because I don't want to disrupt that. This is a guy named Kevin Gagnon who, I don't know if he was ever really involved in church until he started coming to Grace Church, but... God moved in his heart and he found a way to contribute to the mission of God with his church family. And he's doing it in the context of other relationships with followers of Jesus in this church family. There's a young mom. There's two young moms, Sarah and Bia. I don't know if they put the Wednesday mommies group together or not, but Sarah and Bia are full-time moms. I think Sarah has a part-time job. I'm not sure about Bia, but on Wednesday mornings, they just got a whole bunch of other young moms together and they show up, they pay a babysitter and they do a Bible study together and have a life group. I I think that's brilliant. My wife and I, we started Grace Church as a Texas Hold'em Friday night Bible study. Actually, no, it started as a Bible study. Sorry. But I've had friends, one of the guys who's on our board of advisors came to faith in Jesus on a Friday night in my Texas Hold'em Bible study. So before we had life groups, We had poker nights. 
Like it's like I don't care what it looks like. There's a, another book I read that Christians should give Friday nights to Jesus. And the idea was that you and another Christian friend or two on Friday night get a whole bunch of your friends together for just something social. But these friends are not followers of Jesus, ideally. And the goal isn't to preach at them, to do a Bible study with them. It's to do something social and fun on Friday nights with you and one or two other friends from our church. You just go hang and you invite a couple of friends, they do, and you get all these different people together that don't know each other, and you guys become the common bond between all of these different friend groups. And at some point, they're going to ask, how do you guys know each other? And that's when you get the opportunity to say that we go to the same church. Really? You guys go to the same church? What church is it? Right? Here, and here's what God's done in my life. And think of like a 10-second way to summarize what God's doing in your life and see if he doesn't use that. But that's it's getting engaged in the mission of God, but doing it in the context of relationship. Here's what I know, and here's the whole point, that Christians in isolation, unengaged, get picked off by the enemy. And I'm going to have to start running through these thoughts now because I don't have a whole lot of time. But here's the third thought. The mission is to give to others what God has given us. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, the last phrase of that verse, Jesus said, Give as freely as you have received. What have we received? We've received the good news that God offers forgiveness through faith in His Son, Jesus. That's one thing that we can give. We've also received love, mercy, and compassion. I think the better question is, what have you received in your relationship with God that you've chosen to withheld, withhold from another person because they don't deserve it? If you can think of something, then this is the thought I want you to park on. Because that's what you need to address today. Because some of you guys have never shared with others your story of what God's been doing in your life. You never invited a friend to become a part of a worship experience with you here at Grace. You've never initiated a genuine friendship with those who are in proximity with you because you didn't vibe with them or because you're not from the same background or economic status. Fourth thought. The results of the mission are out of your hands. You're not in control of that. In verses 9 through 10, Jesus tells them not to take anything with them. There's a reckless abandon of that. He says, don't take an extra jacket. Don't take an extra coat. Don't take a walking stick. Don't even take a dollar bill. I mean, he said, uh, any, any money, right? But don't take anything with you, he says. That had to be scary because they were gone, I think, for like a few weeks. And they weren't to do anything, just go and do what? Trust God. That's what they were supposed to do. They were supposed to go and, and trust God. And truthfully, when God puts something in your heart that you're supposed to do for his kingdom purposes in the world through this church family, you're going to get up to that moment like a high dive over a swimming pool on the first time. And you're going to be hanging onto that board and you're going to be terrified on whether or not you're going to die if you do this. Well, when you get to the place where you're right about to do the scary thing that God's put in your heart to do, and you're wondering whether or not you should do it. At that moment, bro, you got to let go of the board and jump. That's it. You just have to jump. Whether that's taking your first step in baptism, or that's inviting a friend, sharing your story, giving a tithe, having a hard conversation with somebody you need to reconcile with, forgiving a hurt from your past, or loving an enemy. When you get to the point where you're about to chicken out, jump. Because you and I can't control what happens next, but we can control whether or not we're obedient. You and I can't control what happens after our obedience, only that we obey. 
And that's the kind of faith that God loves and rewards. The fifth thought. The mission pushes you to focus on those who need it. Verses 11 through 15. Jesus says to focus on those who are receptive. Jesus never forced himself on other people, and we shouldn't do the same thing. People are going to ask you what you believe. Those are the people you talk to. People are going to ask you if you're going to Easter. You're going to have a friend who, where do you guys go? And like, you're going to feel the moment when it comes up naturally, and that's going to be the opportunity to speak Jesus into their life. But we don't force it. Like, there's things that we can do, right? Um, they kind of introduce the idea of spirituality and we can feel them change the subject. When they change the subject, we let them change the subject. That's what we do. Jesus was perceptive and observant. Think of the woman at the well. Jesus goes uh, to the woman, uh, stays at the, the well in, in Samaria. And there's a woman there and he says, hey, can I have a drink? And she says, how are you a Jew talking to me, a Samaritan? Okay, now she's bringing up the cultural divide. So he leans into the moment and he brings up faith. She responds to that by saying, you Jews say that we should worship in Jerusalem, but we say that we should worship here in Mount Hebron and Shechem. What, what do you say? Right? So he's allowing the conversation to progress to her level of receptivity. And that's what we ought to do. The, need, the mission pushes us to focus on those who need it. I had a friend of mine, um, not a friend, he's a friend of my dad's, uh, a guy named Pastor Joe from New York. And he said, Sean, if you go after the people no other church is looking for, you're going to have the church that everybody is looking for. Because I think that there's a, we start looking for people to connect to that can help us. We are not necessarily looking for the people that need us. The sixth thought is that the mission requires that we are smart and kind. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus said, Look, I am sending you out as sheep among wolves, so be as shrewd as snakes and harmless as doves. I love that verse. Because the advantage of having the truth is the confidence that comes with that, knowing that everybody here really does need Jesus, and I know him. The disadvantage of truth is the arrogance that can quickly follow. So he says to be discerning, to be wise as a serpent, to know what's right from wrong, but be harmless with that information. Then he goes into a longer explanation that their faithfulness is actually going to make them stand out among the crowd and that this would come with persecution both inside and outside their families. So be smart and harmless. Be gentle, compassionate. See, you can use the truth like an ax or a scalpel, right? You've heard that metaphor before. On Facebook, that's an ax. Over a cup of coffee, that's a scalpel, right? With signs picketing against lost people, that's, that's an ax. In the backyard, carefully asking questions to pull out what another person believes, to learn and discern where they're at and how they got there so that God could give you insight into how you would address that conversation, that's a scalpel. I mean, the truth is, you get to your point quicker with an ax than a scalpel. But 
the point gets to them with a scalpel, not an axe. Dang it, I didn't write that down. That was really good. Somebody needs to tweet that right there. Uh, but this is not to be interpreted as timid. Because in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus says, Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They cannot touch your soul. Fear only God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So be wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. Not fearful, right? Be bold. Step into that moment. But step into that moment with a scalpel, not an axe. Finally, the last thought is that the mission requires that you, you and I, you and I, Choose Jesus over everything. Matthew 10, verse 32 to 33, and 38 to 42 says this, Everyone who acknowledges me publicly on earth, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But everyone who denies me here on earth, I will also deny before my Father in heaven. You, we, we need to hold up there for a second. Jesus says that those who claim me here, I will claim there. Those who deny me here, I will deny there. That's one of those hard truths. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount had said, if you forgive men their trespasses against you, then your Father will forgive you your trespasses. But if you don't forgive others their sins against you, God will not forgive you your sins against him. It's a hard truth. This is another one. You and I have to make a conscious choice to identify as followers of Jesus. The first way that we do that biblically is through baptism. And today we're doing baptisms here at Grace Church. And some of you guys have become followers of Jesus. And since becoming a follower of Jesus, you have not been water baptized. You've not been baptized under water. Some of us would say I was baptized as a kid, but that was an expression of your mom and dad's faith, not yours. And at some point, you need to make a conscious choice to identify with your faith as a follower of Jesus. Verse 38 says, if you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. Anyone who receives you receives me. Anyone who receives me receives the Father who sent me. If you receive a prophet as one who speaks for God, you will be given the same reward as a prophet was given for speaking the words of God. And if you receive righteous people because of their righteousness, you will be given the reward of those who are righteous. If you even gave a cup of cold water to one of the least of the, my followers, you will surely be rewarded. So don't be afraid to mark yourself as a follower of Jesus. Like I, I wear a Celtics jersey to a Celtics game. I wear a Patriot jersey to Gillette Stadium, right? I love C.J. Stroud, the uh, quarterback for the Houston Texans. He can't have a microphone in his face without talking about Jesus. <laughs> it might aggravate people, and I don't think he cares because he's never a jerk about it. He just says, everything I have, I have because of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is my Savior, right? And then he'll answer the reporter's question. All right, so what are your thoughts on the game? I'm just grateful to be here. I know what God's done in my life, and I wouldn't have this opportunity without Jesus. But uh, the way the team pulled together today was phenomenal, and I'm grateful to be on this team, and the guys are working hard, and coaches, right? And then he goes on, and he goes, but ultimately, 
all of this just makes me incredible thankful for my relationship with Jesus Christ. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I kind of feel like that dude might wear his Jesus jersey better than me. But that's a great example for all of us. Uh, and then Jesus made this promise. He said, if you hang on to your life, you'll lose it. In the end, you'll acknowledge that you wasted it. If you try to hang on to everything, God says, I promise that by the end of your life, you're gonna realize how badly you blew it. But he says, but if you will give up your life for my sake, I promise you're going to get to the end and be glad that you did. Jesus says, uh, Mark chapter 10, verse 29 to 31, I assure you that everyone who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or property for my sake and for the good news will receive now in return a hundred times as many houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, property, along with persecution. And in the world to come, that person will have eternal life. That many who are the greatest now will be the least important then. And those who seem to be least important now will become the greatest then. And today, you and I get to choose when we become great. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and we'll pray. God, I love you with all of my heart. God, there's stuff that you've pointed out in our heart that we got to work on. There's people we've been unkind to. There's things that we've freely received that we have not freely given. There are ways in which we've hidden our relationship with you. We've buried it in the backyard. We've put it in the back pocket. But God, truthfully, when you look out at all of the people we are around all the time, the people that live in our street, people that live in our neighborhood, people that we work with, go to school with, commute with, you see this mass of people as compasses without a needle. That true north is Jesus. They're sheep without a shepherd. That shepherd is Jesus. And God, what makes them broken is the same thing that make us bro makes us broken. And that's what we're disconnected from you because of our sin, which is the reason why every one of us need Jesus. Gotta love that you, in accomplishing your mission, chose to accomplish that mission through people, just like you're still choosing to accomplish that mission through people, through us. Help us not to live in isolation. Help us to choose to engage in the mission, to look for creative ways to be a blessing to other people. Help us to constantly pray for those that we love and care about and are connected to, to find their way back to you, but help us to recognize that we might be the answer to that prayer. God, for those of us who are nervous to identify with you publicly through baptism, soften our heart. Let us see the pride that we're hiding behind. Let us not be arrogant. Let us humble ourselves and submit to you and take that next step also. This is our prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name and we all say it together. Amen.